0: Welcome to Political O.D. episode 42. The last podcast started by saying nothing much has happened uh, and there seems to have been a sudden rush to the head um, uh, in the past uh, four weeks.
1: Well, yes, there's been a flurry of activity and uh, whether that's changed much in reality, I suppose we'll get on to discuss that, David, won't we?
0: Let's let's start by looking at, at uh, what's happening over in Westminster Sunak just does not seem to have been able to cut a break for himself, has he? he? He seems to go from one one crisis to another. Certainly, it's very hard to see how, whether he has an election in May or November, it will make a great deal of difference anymore.
1: I don't think that it actually will make it a great deal of difference. We've had this discussion about whether a May election would be preferable to one later in the year, perhaps. It would. Some people are saying because it gives less time for the Tory party to implode. I suppose it makes that implosion less pronounced. But at the same time, it, it, it doesn't seem like any kind of recovery is possible just at the moment. Just simply because the party's so confused about what it wants to say. Um, it's got various wings that are battling over the. F- future that it has after Sunak and that seems to be um, the focus rather than making a a distinct pitch for the election which it it needs to do and yes it's fighting against quite not a weak Labour Party because the Labour Party is actually doing well in the polls but certainly a Labour Party that doesn't capture people's imagination but it doesn't seem to have kind of a, a coherent alternative to offer.
0: I think it would be fair to say that neither Sunak nor Starmer are particularly loved by uh, people answering the opinion polls. I mean, they seem to be thought of as equally dull. Whilst Starmer has managed to create a sense of a Labour Party that is going forward, Sunak just hasn't managed to create any idea around himself of an ability to make much difference. You know, no one really believes that the government can do much about inflation. That's largely about markets. Taxes, they seem to be looking for a clever wheeze to make it look as if they're reducing taxes whilst the tax take overall is just going to be punishing in the next few years. We'll come to the protocol later, but there's nothing significant that has gone forward in terms of what are we as the Conservative Party what, what is the Conservative Party going into the next election? There doesn't seem to be a lot of difference between Labour and Conservatives. And then it's just down to do we want to change? Yeah, we want to change. Where that leads five years down the line when it turns out that Starmer is equally useless is, is a different issue. But for this election, um, Sunak just simply hasn't been able to cut it through, has he?
1: I suppose that's true, and we mentioned the last time about the election that's coming up in the United States, and there we have two fairly unpopular characters who are extremely polarising, and in the UK election, we're going to have two unpopular characters that just don't capture people's imaginations at all. It's not that they're particularly polarising, and they've both tried to... You know, in in comparison to the previous leaders of their parties, uh, cultivate uh, an image of steady sustainability or uh, competence or whatever, and it just hasn't really amounted to anything. I mean, the the Conservative Party, I know, you know, we're they're on the brink of, I suppose, their pre general election budget. We're expecting that to be announced next week. I think the budget statement, the 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 debate is about whether. They might possibly be able to find some sort of tax break for people that that, that isn't so much a tax break in substance as just a, a shuffling money about. And then notice non DOMs were being mentioned this morning. Um, could they change the rules of non DOMs to, to somehow uh, manage to finance a, a national insurance cut or something like that? So, given that that's right in the teeth of an election, as it were. It just sort of shows the poverty of ideas and the poverty of options that they have open to them.
0: If anything, around the us, Israel, there's been no clear leadership provided by the Conservatives. I don't think Starmer has covered himself in glory in this either. But you know, it's a time when you expect a leadership that can articulate a position and particularly set the conduct of the debate, and instead it. It has gone to the streets to a large extent. And that is not comfortable. It's not comfortable within a British scenario. We're just not used to that sort of comfort. If this was Paris, you'd expect it. But it's mm-hmm. not, you know, London is not Paris. London has not got that take to the streets, lads, build the barricades. You, you, you feel that that is where our politics is going, that it's going to be a politics of street confrontation rather than. Uh, confrontation on the green benches of Westminster.
1: That seems to be the case and the two leaders, it's a perfect, perfect example of two leaders who are uh, are struggling to find the language that articulates the concerns that are actually playing out in the streets. You know, you have the Conservative Party implying that Labour suffers from an anti-Semitism problem and the Labour Party implying that the Conservative Party suffers from an anti-Islam problem. And yet neither of those parties um, is able to articulate their own position in a kind of convincing way or explain even the problems that are afflicting the country in a way that really cuts through to the public. So, yeah, it, it's just so uninspiring and uh, it, it's worrying as well, because it's, it, uh, as you say, because the concern, people's concerns don't seem to be reflected in the political sphere it does seem to be playing out on the streets. And and there's no pushback on that institutionally. I mean, the Conservative Party keeps issuing sort of statements from people that imply that they're going to crack down on pro-Palestine protests or whatever, but you never really see a a following through in that rhetoric or a plan to actually... But also the the inability to actually...
0: Tackle the extremes, which are clearly in play in all of this, whether it's anti-Semitic or more on the on the uh, anti-Islamic. I think you know which, because I think you have to keep it to Islamic rather than Islamist. You you you're looking at the inability to deal with the extremes means that the centre gets smothered, and and that's why there's this danger of street confrontation uh, and street politics rather than recent political debate. They're not able to articulate why the extremes are wrong. It's too easy to label people without actually dealing with the fundamental issues at hand.
1: Well, partly as well, that's down to the kind of prevailing climate, which is so kind of condemnatory when anybody yeah, misspeaks, uses language that might be outside a certain frame of reference that the uh, kind of liberal academics have deemed okay and that's the reason that you can't deal candidly with a lot of issues and I'm thinking in particular of the issue of Islamist extremism which is a problem in Britain and one of the leading problems in Britain but we're barely allowed to discuss never mind tackle because we're so nervous of being branded and certainly at, at the top level of politics people are so nervous of being branded um, as Islamophobes, that kind of phobe term hangs over so many important issues that we have in politics today, we're not able to have a candid discussion about certain things. We've allowed that situation to arise as well by basically kind of endorsing this left wing liberal way of, of looking at the world, which isn't able to broach any kind of alternative or any differential in, in views.
0: And I think we know from our own experience here in Northern Ireland that the extremes will embed themselves in the community to such an extent that it's very difficult to draw them apart. It's not condemning the communities. It's it's saying that's how extremists work. They draw in the, the community in such a way as to create a confrontation between them and the state. It's just the way
1: extremism operates. And that's why we've got ourselves in such problems by kind of embracing ident- identitarianism. Indeed. Um, for want of another word, word, because then, you know, by, by attacking a certain viewpoint in, uh, or or a certain way of looking at the world, you're seen to be attacking a community or a set of people. And that's just simply not the case or shouldn't be the case oh, because... Uh, if, that, you into, uh, if you get into identitarian in
0: politics, now, you know, I think what we, again, what we've seen is It's largely defined by opposition to another group. SNP in Scotland, it certainly uh, separates itself by being not England. Mm -hmm. Irish nationalism defines itself by being not British. Basque separatism by being not Spanish. There's a cultural identity there, but it seems to take itself down into something very small and narrow. And that you have to be part of that, because if you're not part of that, you can't really call yourself whatever.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's just the way that these kinds of um, groups work. It's the way that that type of politics works. It's the way that that uh, way of looking at the world operates. And it's something that we ought to be sort of striving to to rise above. But there's little sign of that happening at the moment. In fact, we're becoming kind of more embroiled in that way of thinking, to my mind anyway. Uh, well, indeed, just
0: moving on, the one thing Sunak has got to be able to shout about is... Uh, His ability to have not only achieved the Windsor Framework, which embeds the Northern Ireland Protocol and settle relationships with Europe at whatever level that is, and that is now being broadly endorsed by the DUP and those, well, many of the other parties simply wanted uh, that to happen anyway, but certainly the DUP were the last major party to hold out um, against uh, the imposition of the Protocol and the Windsor Framework. Uh, and they now seem to have rolled over ostensibly to get Stormont back, but I think they could have done Stormont at any time on a local basis. Uh, their problem was, of course, that they had said that they had to end the Irish sea border before they would go back to Stormont. They haven't ended the sea border. They're using some fig leaves of some small changes within the duration of the protocol to suddenly say that everything is all hunky-dory and lovely and uh, haven't we done well? Words have to, at some stage, be measured up to reality. And there's still a sea border. Uh, the protocol's still fully in place. The winter framework is now just a way of dealing with the operation of the of the protocol, which it always was. And the DUP are uh, back at Stormont, pretty much back to normal.
1: Yeah, we're in a very strange position in many ways, and we've got this sort of three way split in unionism, if you want to look at it like that. Because the TUV, I mean, are quite clearly saying the Irish Sea border is still there, and while the Irish Sea border is still there, we're not part of the United Kingdom genuinely, and therefore Stormont shouldn't be up and running. The Ulster Unionist Party, for its part, has acknowledged that the Irish Sea border is still there. It says that staying out of Stormont um, creates other difficulties and that that might, in the end, undermine unionism and therefore we should be back in. And the DUP now is living in this kind of la la land where they're claiming to have dealt with the Irish Sea border and returned to Stormont on that basis. Um, but, you know, Jeffrey Donaldson is making all the same arguments that the UUP is making. Um, to kind of cover his decision. He's also you know, d- rubbishing the people who are pointing out that the Irish sea border is still there. We had a, a judgment um, as we record this yesterday, uh, David, that clearly said that because of the protocol and the framework that aspects of the legacy bill um, would be struck down in, in Northern Ireland because they were against uh, EU law. But the DUP, uh, certainly Sir Geoffrey Donaldson's wing of the DUP, is insistent on claiming that black is white. It's it's really bizarre to watch. Well, I think it's particularly bizarre because having said that the
0: DUP have agreed to go back into Stormont, it's quite clear the DUP is split. Now, in unionism, you can always bet, I would have thought, near enough half your party is always going to agree with whatever the leader says. So so there, there's always going to be that element. Those that have been there, done it, perhaps now sitting in the lords, certainly not that keen uh, to go back. Uh, it's it, it, How does a party stand when there's such a clear and vocal disagreement on the path taken? It's hard to see how how that will work in the future?
1: I don't know how these things can be reconciled in the longer term because Sammy Wilson, um, Member of Parliament for East Antrim for one, um, Lord Dodds in the House of Lords has been another one who's been very, very vocal about the difficulties with the deal. The fact that really the claims being made of it, the promises that were made in the document aren't being borne out. I don't understand how that view and the leader's view that his critics are are being short-sighted, are being stupid, don't know their history, all these other kind of terms of high-handed, almost abuse that he's thrown around, because I think Sir Geoffrey Donaldson's really been quite arrogant in this whole affair, or has attempted to sort of use this high-handed tone to belittle the people who are claiming that there are some issues with that deal i don't know how that can coexist um with the criticism that he that he's receiving within his party i don't know whether the issues that sammy wilson and lord dodds and others are pointing out whether that's going to become a sort of over time a more low level grumbling and then eventually die out um because they view sir geoffrey donaldson as having achieved something beyond that in 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 a kind of broader sense or whether it's going to become a rupture in the party but at the moment just the messages being sent out by different senior members of that party, I just, I don't know how it it, uh, goes on like that in the longer term and and, uh, proves sustainable because it's always going to be a rallying point against Donaldson's leadership while that criticism Mm -hmm. continues at the same level That it's doing at the moment. There were two aspects, of course, to the return to Stormont.
0: One was the sea border has disappeared. That just hasn't happened. The other aspect was we need to get Stormont back uh, because we need to get things moving again. It seems that part of that was predicated on having a huge bung from Westminster. I recall back in January that that bung was offered to a large extent, on getting, getting balanced budgets going forward, a bit of fiscal responsibility, um, but also that that fiscal responsibility would include revenue raising. But so everybody now that Stormont is back is saying, oh, no, that's not the case. We never agreed to that. But it was certainly part of the discussion. And if it wasn't agreed, it was certainly an expectation by the Treasury that that would happen in some way. The only thing we've seen since Stormont has opened is a very quick pitch for a share of the money that might be coming our way. But the discussion on revenue raising seems to be constantly put to one side and said we don't have to raise the revenue. I don't see how any of that squares up. I don't hear much talk about a program for government at all and we're only a month or so away from having to set a budget and obviously the rates for the year ahead. It's going to be interesting to see how all this is balanced out.
1: Yeah, I, I know that we've started out by claiming that the government is confused in a lot of issues. On this issue, it wasn't confused at all. And for yep. a number of years, it's pointed out that Northern, uh, that Northern Ireland and Stormont was living beyond its means, that it needed to raise revenue, that it needed to put public services on a sustainable footing, that the way that they were running at the moment wasn't adequate and that it was going to cause problems over a longer term period. The idea that this was not discussed with the parties, I mean, apart from the fact that it was in public record uh, that uh, that revenue raising was required, is just risable. And that, the only thing that I can assume is that This sort of culture has been inculcated in Stormont over such a long time that so long as they sort of hold the government's feet to the fire, so long as they grumble enough, so long as they threaten not to do what they need to do, um, that somehow this money will be found and that the government just simply won't ever come to the point of rocking the boat to the extent that it forces uh, people to to either make the cuts or raise the revenue that they need to, to raise. Either way, it's just an appalling way to run your affairs. Yes, the programme for government, I mean, what were they doing for two years? They, we were told that the boycott of Star, Stormont was stopping all these issues yeah. being um, addressed, stopping all this wonderful work from happening that would otherwise be happening. It appears that none of that is in place to yeah. um to, to go ahead. The fact that we're now back a number of weeks that all of this stuff is still in the long finger. That whatever kind of budget is coming down the line will probably be woefully inadequate. Will probably just essentially point the finger at the government and the treasury and say that they should always be providing more, even though we're already funded way in excess of uh, you know the the average sort of per capita spending in England, in Scotland, and and in Wales. In in fact. None of this is taken under their notice because yeah. we're special, we're entitled, and whatever we get, we're always expecting more.
0: Yeah, I mean, we were talking just before uh, we started uh, using one example. I think it it again comes back to the honesty in, in debate and discussion around topics. Stephen Nolan had done a piece earlier this week or last week uh, on the change of age for the free passes for TransLink. But the consultation that went out seemed to be, should we change the age of that to retirement age or 65 or to, to, to a higher age group? And that's fine. You can have a debate or a conversation around, should you have you know, a higher or lower age for free transport and that, That's a perfectly laudable, but I think you can only have that conversation if you say, well, why do we have it and what are the consequences? One of the reasons why we have such a low, uh, compared to England, for example, uh, age for free transport is that that is effectively a not a subsidy, but certainly an intervention to sustain Translink. One of the reasons for the age being low is that it increases the revenue, guaranteed revenue that goes directly to Translink. So when it's said that if we raise the age, we could save. 20 million from, 40, I can't remember the number, let's say 20 million from the Stormont budget. Yeah, you can do that because Department of Infrastructure will no longer be paying 20 million to TransLink. That'll put a hole of 20 million in TransLink's budget. So how does TransLink make that up? Either increase fares or to cut services. I don't see... That is having been part of the consultation. So you can have an abstract discussion about age profiles, but to presume that everybody who suddenly gets their free pass removed is going to pay for the journeys they would make anyway is, is mad. I mean, you know, I, get, I get free trade journeys. Honestly, I would take the car. Because in in my book, there's a convenience element of the car, which, because it's free, trains are slightly more inconvenient, but, you know, it's free, so I'll take the train. Uh, It it makes up for the inconvenience, but it's, it's free. But if I had to pay, I would have to pay for using the car, or I'd have to pay for the train. Convenience then trumps the cost. So... It, it just seems to be an inability to honestly have a discussion with all the issues laid out in front of people rather than simply uh, an either or.
1: Well, well, you've taken one particular aspect of the financial discussion, David, There, and you've broken it down in a kind of candid way and a sensible way that we just can't seem to manage in this country because yeah. the facts are that we have a finite amount of money that we can spend it on, you know, various things. But if we decide to spend the money on A, we're not going to have the same amount of money to put into B and everything else. So, you know, we've kind of got used to being told that we can have everything and there not be any consequences of it. But we know for a fact that this isn't the case. And Anybody with any kind of brains in Northern Ireland knows, for example, that there are massive issues with uh, water infrastructure and that many of those issues are born out of the fact that we haven't paid water rates in the same way that the rest of the United Kingdom has over a long number of years. We don't have infrastructure because we haven't invested in infrastructure because we've chosen to put our money into other things or we've become caught up in... Uh, sort of issues around planning and, and people trying to get their um, little sort of community part of the pie and all this kind of thing. So, I mean, what you're talking about, essentially, again, is a, being grown up about things, being candid about things, being honest with people that you just can't have endless spending without making some sacrifices and that sometimes difficult decisions need to be made. And, you know, that, that that's a perfect example, Um, transport, but if we cut... Effectively, what you're talking about there, if it's 20 million pounds, I don't know. It's a 20 million pound cut to public transport. And we're going to have to um make that decision about whether as a society we'd prefer to do that or whether we might prefer, for instance, to look at prescriptions or student fees, which you know, I know um Newton Emerson has recently written quite persuasively about uh about how this is a sort of a subsidy that doesn't work and other kind of aspects of the uh, economic picture that we just simply haven't looked at properly before and haven't been candid about when we have been discussing them.
0: Well, and one of the reasons why we run these budget deficits, I think came out in the audit um, office this past week, which showed that we simply can't build things on time and within budget to any great extent. The numbers there were quite shocking in terms of what a project was meant to cost, what it ended up costing, and how long it took to complete. We see that with, you know, back to honesty in, in, in making points, you know, the Irish government made great, great noises about putting 400 million euros, uh, which it had previously committed to, into the A5. But when they first committed to put 400 million into the A5, the road was going to cost 800 million. So they were committing to half the cost of the A5. But the projected cost of the A5 is now 1.6 billion. So the Irish government is really only offering a quarter of that cost, leaving the rest of it to be spent by whoever, well, wherever that funding is going to come from. There you have people simply saying, oh yeah, for the for the optics, you know, we're putting in the same amount as we promised. Yeah, but in real terms, you're actually only paying half of what you'd actually originally committed to. That is half the cost of the total build. This happens more and more. And I guess that is going to lead us inevitably on to the discussion of casement, which seems to be a never ending expansion of cost. The the accusation that unionists don't want to see casement built is about the same as unionists don't want a, a Sinn Féin first minister. Whether whether it's built, whether it happens, that that's just going to be. But what I think on casement is appalling is the inflation that is well above the actual rate of inflation. If you take a 10-year inflation uh, from 2013 to 2023, you're moving a, a project from about 70 million up to maybe... Uh, 95 million. Where, where does 200 million come from? And given the capacity for people to build anything in Northern Ireland at cost and on time, do we really think it's going to be ready by 2028? And do we really think that even 200 million is going to be the final cost? And who's going to pay for it? Because again, if money is paid to casement, it's money that is not paid to health reform. It is money not paid to improving the school uh, estate. It is money not being paid to improve sewage and water services. So you can't simply say, just give us the money um, and sure it'll all be all right.
1: Maybe it's just my imagination, but this seems to be another issue where the actual kind of facts of the thing have gone out the window and it's become a way in which people sort of mark their virtue again, if you're sort of a nice, progressive, liberal person you think, oh, isn't it great that the GAA are getting a stadium and that we're going to get Euro 28 and it's going to be good for Northern Ireland and everything else. And if you're nasty and naysaying and um sort of obstructive about our society, you're going to say no, or this is the way that it's being portrayed. But I mean, I, I don't think any unionist would have had a difficulty with Casement Park being redeveloped on time and on the budget that it was originally allocated. I think it was maybe sort of 56 million pounds and then the GAA we're going to pa- uh, get 15. And even if you were saying now that we're going to lift that up for inflation, which I mean, you're saying is is what sort of 30% or something yeah, over 20%. that uh, yeah, yeah. 10 year period, maybe we're going to get the, so a stadium for in and around 100 million pounds that's fine. But I mean, the idea that this is in any way justified in the current circumstances, um, and you're talking at least double that, but I mean, that's not even a top figure, as you've kind of intimated, because I mean, some people are now sort of quoting, it could be closer to 300 million pounds. You can't just have an open checkbook for these sorts of projects. And let's be absolutely honest about it. This is not a facility that is going to be used by the whole of Northern Ireland. This is is a facility that is for one small section of society that that likes GA. It's not a small section, but it's a a substantial section of society that that likes Gaelic games, but it's not at all an inclusive section of society. There will not be any other, there will not be benefits either long-term or probably in the short term for the rest of, of society. And if we're talking about Euro 28, that is... A football tournament and the sort of lasting legacy of this football tournament looks like it's going to be a stadium in West Belfast for the exclusive use of Gaelic games, although there may be a few sort of events like concerts and things like that 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 it gets used for occasionally as well. A stadium that's not going to be properly used in the longer term because when they were asked to kind of prepare their use case, um for this stadium, Belfast City Council were saying, you know, that there might be one GAA game where it would be filled to capacity in the year, and the rest of the time, you know, well, might be five or six thousand people there for junior finals and so on, this kind of thing. It's just, it doesn't stack up. It doesn't make sense. And it's grossly unfair. And I don't think in many other societies there would be an issue with saying that, but in this society, for some reason, We've got to the point where it's seen as some kind of marker of bigotry to point out these very basic, self-evident, fundamental truths.
0: Well, indeed, it's an unreality of politics. It's an inability to actually be able to have a discussion on costs and also to the fact that if this is going to be paid for, something's got to give something else will not get that money. You know, There's a finite resort from Westminster. We know that even Labour coming in are going to have a very tight uh, criteria for their budgets. There'll be a lot of people pressing on their door uh, for spending as well. They're just not going to be able to keep putting their hand in their pocket for quite a number of years. And unless Stormont can get his act together, you really do have to ask,
1: what is it for? Just to make a further point on that, David, I think a lot of this the, this um, sort of absence of candour from these discussions as well, it has to be put at the feet of our broadcast media as well. Yes. I mean, I'm not going to mention names or anything else, but one of the sort of flagship political programmes was discussing the casement business and other spending priorities in Stormont. And the commentators, basically the entire panel of commentators, were arguing that everything should be funded and that uh, that was only fair and that there didn't need to be any compromises. And that wasn't challenged by the post uh, either. So, you know, that's the quality of debate that we have outside, of course, our own informed discussions. That's the quality of debate that we're used to having among, you know, supposedly informed and intelligent people in this society. And that's not a surprise that therefore those attitudes are inculcated in our society too often i think our mainstream media
0: becomes almost an amplified echo chamber from from twitter and from uh, social media and it's not healthy it's not healthy at all well indeed uh, anyway i think we we should leave it there uh, for today given the pace of things i think perhaps we should come back uh, we've got the rushdale result tonight we've got the budgets coming up here in Northern Ireland, which, as we've said before, will be fascinating uh, to see how it's suggested that the books will be balanced and everybody gets what they want.
1: you have have to look forward to that, David. I'm sure the um, the the rivers will flow with milk and honey when that happens.
0: Well, indeed. Okay, Alan. I'll see you again. Thank you, David. Bye now.